You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome to this week's Walker Webcast. Our episode last week with Jim Courier, live from the Australia Open, was a wonderful discussion about Jim's career, what it took to win, and how he lived his life both before, during, and after being the world's number one tennis player. Two nights ago, I watched a webinar with Dr. Jim Lair, famed sports psychologist who both worked with Jim Courier and was a guest on the Walker webcast last year. And Lair was asked in Q&A about Courier's comment last week that his parents gave him the ability to take risks and fail. And Lair said, that comment by Jim is the greatest compliment he could ever give his parents. The ability to take risks and fail or succeed is at the center of American capitalism. And as negative comments on social media abound with regard to politicians, CEOs, and even NFL referees when anything goes wrong, I think it's important to remember that unless we have risk takers who seek success but can deal with failure, we won't continue to grow as a nation and a society. And my guest today will talk a lot about social media and its impact on sales. And with that in mind, let me make a couple comments on what we're seeing in the markets, and then I'll jump to my guest. All eyes are on the FOMC meeting today. We shall see what comes out of that. Hopefully, no great surprises. I will say Jerome Powell in December seemed to have thread that needle perfectly. So hopefully, Chairman Powell has the same ability today. Commercial real estate property sales hit an all-time high last year. That was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal today. That's not new news to those of us in the industry, but it's good to see the data. And after I attended the National Multifamily Housing Council meeting in Orlando last week, which I will note was attended by 4,100 people and there was barely a mask in the hotels or conference areas, and I've yet to hear of any great super spreader event. There is a ton of institutional capital looking to be deployed in commercial real estate in 2022. So on to my guest, Frank Cespedes is the MBA class of 1973 senior lecturer of business administration at the Harvard Business School. Dr. Cespedes earned a BA from City College, New York, an MS from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and a PhD from Cornell University. He teaches entrepreneurial sales and marketing in the MBA program and heads the Aligning Strategy and Sales Executive Education Program at HBS. He is the author or co-author of numerous Harvard Business Review articles and HBS case studies, along with six books, including Aligning Strategy and Sales, The Choices, Systems, and Behaviors that Drive Effective Selling, and his most recent book, Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. So, Dr. Cespedes, First of all, welcome to Walker Webcast, and thank you for joining me. I want to start with an example at the beginning of your book about Bob Nardelli and Home Depot. But before I ask you to describe what Nardelli got wrong about sales, I've got another question about leadership. 
As you recall, and I will remind viewers who may not, Jack Welsh over 20 years took GE from a billion dollars of annual profits to 10 billion a year of annual profits. Market got to half a trillion dollars, which at the time was the most valuable corporation on earth. And he had three of his senior executives who were in a horse race to see who would replace him. One was Jeff Immelt, the other was Bob Nardelli, and the third was James McInerney. Immelt gets the job, McInerney leaves and goes to Boeing, and Nardelli leaves and goes to Home Depot. Now, we all know what Immelt did, which was destroy over $400 billion of shareholder value over the last 20 years at GE. Nardelli goes to Home Depot and almost drives it into the ground, and only McInerney, only McInerney, who went to Boeing, had basically created any shareholder value, and McInerney did a really good job at Boeing. We're going to talk about how hard it is to find sales talent, but how could it be that America's greatest corporation had a horse race to replace one of the great CEOs, and two of the three were abject failures? Well, first of all, Willie, thank you very, very much for inviting me to the podcast. I've admired it. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, in answer to your question, let me go back to a couple of things. First, your introductory comments about failure. You're exactly right. It's at the heart of capitalism. Let's hope that our risk tolerance hasn't disappeared as a society. So people fail and people succeed. Number two, I like the quote from an investment banker I heard early in my career, early case study. He said, look, when you look at people in our business, everybody's smart until they're not. Let's hope Jerome Powell does thread the needle again. You know, he doesn't call me up. He doesn't call you up about what he should do. Let's hope he can get it. Next comment I'd make, and this I do think is one of the achievements that Welch had at GE. Welch didn't build that shareholder value by himself. Jeff Immel didn't destroy it by himself. Nardelli didn't destroy it by himself at Home Depot. It's a lot of other things, including exogenous factors. But one of uh, Welch's achievements, I think, is that he did have a horse race. He did have three people who sure look good on paper to succeed him. That, I think, is part of what any CEO has to do. And then the third thing, and here I'm going to quote another person from early in my career, one of the smartest things that I heard, early case study, and I think it does point to the two out of three issue that you're drawing attention to. He said, Frank, what you're going to see in your career is that marketing and sales, business development in general, in most companies, is managed the way it should have been managed five to 10 years in the past. Why? Because that's the last time the people making the really important decisions, for example, CEOs who set the foundational conditions for business development in their company, that's the last time they were having regular ongoing contact with customers. Because once they become CEOs, the rest of the organization conspires to, quote, protect them against customers. As a result, they're often making decisions based on an obsolete vision of what's really going on out there. And that's been my experience, that when companies fail and when they fail in terms of tens and hundreds of billions in shareholder value, it's no one thing. You just can't point to one person. 
It's a variety of other factors. That's the best I can do with that question. So when Nardelli got into Home Depot, though, he arrives and he hadn't been protected because he's the new CEO. And one would expect that he went out, met with customers, visited Home Depot stores, et cetera, et cetera. What did he miss in his change to the way that Home Depot sold? Well, I think two things. One is, and this is really about the important link between strategy and sales, strategy and business development. But the heart of Home Depot's value proposition with customers wasn't just our price and our merchandising, but those people who walk the aisles and actually know what they're talking about and providing that service to their customers. My understanding of what happened at Home Depot is they systematically underinvested in that. So that's number one. And number two, and this is linked to, I think, a part of what I know we'll talk about in this session. I think one of the reasons that Home Depot underinvested under his regime was this notion that somehow e-commerce is where everything is going and the brick and mortar store is obsolete. Wasn't true then. It is not true now, almost 15, 20 years later. So if I go on to Amazon today and I put in sales or sales management, I get back something like 80,000 books that I could go on and buy. The only topic I could put in and get more books back that I could buy is leadership. And we just talked a little bit about leadership. But I guess my question to you, Frank, is, Why did you write the 80,000th and first book on sales? (laughs) That's a fair question. Very fair question. Two motivations. The first motivation, fundamentally an intellectual professional motivation. Sales is by far the most context-specific activity. I'm going to use business school jargon, Willie. The most context-specific activity in the so-called value chain. In other words, all those processes any company has to engage in. Selling software is different than selling financial services, different than selling consumer durables, etc. Selling in the U.S. is different than selling in many other parts of the world. And yet, sales is also that area where people feel most comfortable making huge generalizations, usually unsupported by any data whatsoever, beyond what in academia we would call N equals one. When I sold for Google, we did it this way, so should you. When we invested in PayPal, you know, that kind of thing. So after 30 years of, you know, running a business and doing what I think is some reasonable research about the topic, I wanted to write a book that says this is what research does and doesn't tell you about this core activity in business. And I also think, and my second motivation is this, it's a good time for a book like this. There's no doubt that digital technology is the data revolution that will continue throughout our lifetimes. No doubt whatsoever that they're changing buying and selling. But my reading of what people say about this is they, for the most part, don't understand the managerial issues embedded in business development for most firms. So I I wanted to write a book about that as well. So as we sort through the data as it relates to this digital transformation, one of the data points that you bring up in your book 
is that people's impression as it relates to online media, online sales versus brick and mortar is completely distorted. Why don't you just run through the numbers there so that people can understand that what many of us think is an Amazon UPS driven economy is nowhere close to it today. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is Department of Commerce data. And when you look at the way the Department of Commerce tabulates so-called e-commerce, it's a very, very liberal definition of e-commerce. In other words, you go to a website, you may order something there, but actually pick it up in the store. They tabulate that as e-commerce, not brick and mortar. All right. So very liberal. But if you look at their data and ask yourself, what is e-commerce's percentage of total U.S. retail sales just before the pandemic hit, the number is about 11.2%. When I ask executives, what do you think that number was? I typically get estimates from 30 to 60%. In other words, they're not a little bit off. They're orders of magnitude off. Now, what happens during the pandemic? Obviously, when stores are closed or limited to 25 to 50% of their capacity, more buying and selling is going to occur online. But the height, the height, which was, you know, let's cross our fingers and hope for the best, second quarter of 2020, that so far is maximum lockdown conditions in the U.S. E-commerce as a percentage of sales, even in those conditions, was about 15.5%. In other words, it went up 5%. And it's been declining every quarter since then. Latest results, third quarter of 2020, about 13%. By the way, the same is true for work from home. Real estate people should understand that. It reached its height second quarter of 2020, 38%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, now down to about 18%. 18% includes a number of gig workers who always have worked from home. This is a real issue, but technology is a real issue, but it's A, overhyped, and B, I think, misunderstood in its implications for companies. So you spend a lot of time in the book, which is, by the way, to anyone who's watching a fascinating read, about a number of different areas of sales and how the sales funnel and the sales channel has changed significantly. And one of the, I thought, very interesting examples you use is car dealerships and how people shop for cars and then where they make their purchasing decision. And I think, Frank, the numbers that you put there is that people on average spend 12 to 13 hours researching online and then somewhere between three and four hours actually in the dealership. Fascinating to see that actual data on how much Media has allowed people to take information from many, many different sources, consumer reports, reference from a friend, online media, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they still have to go to a dealership. And at the end of the day, they're still not always, but typically. And at the end of the day, they are still interacting with a sales person in that dealership to make the actual buying decision. And it's bringing up this issue of multi-channel and multimedia, which from my read of your book is really what people have to keep in mind is that as much as those statistics say you still have a lot going on in bricks and mortar, it's really the multi-channel, multimedia world that we're living in that is influencing the way people buy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think the example 
if I can say so, is a good example because it does illustrate where the technology is and is not having an impact. The most important thing about sales, always, still, and in the future, is the buyer. Not the seller, but the buyer. Who buys why and how? That's where technology is having its impact. And in fact, auto sales are a good example. The vast majority of auto sales, more than 96%, still occur in the dealership. And by the way, that was true and has been true during the pandemic as well. Now, does this mean that going to Edmunds.com, autotrader.com doesn't make a difference? No, because now, this is the data you're citing, now the buyer walks in already knowing about product, price, price comparisons, etc. You can get all this information online, and in turn, that affects what salespeople have to be good at. And I think anyone who's bought a car in the United States, or at least anyone as old as I am, that's bought a car over the last 20, 25 years, I think will tell you that buying a car in this nation now is a much more pleasant experience than it was 20 years ago. Not because car dealers have somehow taken some vow of customer service, but because of what technology has done to empower buyers. It is an omni-channel buying journey. And as a result, the days of most salespeople essentially being organic, walking, talking versions of product and price literature, those days are disappearing in a hurry. And by the way, the same is true in a whole variety of financial services, real estate services, etc. You give some really interesting data in your book about what happens if you're not transparent with your data as it relates to pricing, the number of people who will walk into a dealership. And if you don't have the price of the car on the car, they'll turn around and walk out the door. And it's so interesting in that context, Frank, to think about it as it relates to the old experience where we were reliant on the car salesman or woman to be the holder of all the information and that they were the market maker. And that's why we all felt like to some degree, they kind of were ripping you off. But in today's world, if you're not out there and fully transparent on your data, you're basically saying consumers bolt immediately almost. Yeah. Well, I think you've described accurately exactly what goes on in car buying and for that matter, in a lot of other consumer goods. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you've got to interpret transparency when it comes to pricing by the third decade of the 21st century, a couple of ways. One is whether you like it or not, in most businesses, and this includes all, you know, most B2B businesses as well as direct to consumer, pricing information, comparative pricing information is available to buyers, right? So that's comment number one. Comment number two, inertia about that is usually not the profit maximizing option. And here again, I'll go back, you know, to Amazon, consumer goods. You may love or loathe Jeff Bezos, but he knew what he was doing at Amazon. And if you go there and you buy consumer packaged goods, you'll notice Amazon reduces every good to a price per ounce comparison. Again, inertia is not the profit maximizing option. But the third comment is this, and this is what I think makes transparency complicated as well as a reality in the current market. Most companies, this has been true throughout my 
career at Harvard, the vast majority of cases I've written, most companies, when it comes to pricing, simply adopt cost plus pricing. This is our cost. Let's see if we can get 10% margin, 20% margin, 30% margin. Yet, if you read virtually any book about pricing, including my books, by the way, what they'll tell you to do is value-based pricing. The reality is because of the data that's now available today, there are more opportunities to do that in a whole variety of industries, but it's an area of business despite the enormous changes taking place in buyer availability of data. It's an area of business where there's a surprising amount of inertia, and yet there's more and more tools available And my uh, advice to executives, including CEOs, if you're not taking advantage of those tools, shame on you. Shame on you. I'm going to jump down a bunch, Frank, on a point that I wanted to talk about later and we're going to build to, but I think it's too important given what you were just talking about, margin and pricing. And that is that 70% of salespeople are incented to just sell as much as they possibly can and not products that have margin. And I'm curious, have you seen companies that you say inertia as it relates to pricing models on goods? There's also the issue as it relates to salespeople of going back and redoing sales contracts and saying, rather than having you just try and go and sell as much as you can, and I'll figure out the margin side of it by managing the business, I want you to do this, and I'm going to give you more incentive to sell that and less incentive to sell that. That's very difficult as it relates to holding on to salespeople who have been incented in a certain way in the past, and now you're asking them to go do something else. Have you seen examples of companies that have been able to shift those sales incentives to get people to sell margin rather than just line? Yeah, yeah, I think there are a number. But what I would say about this issue, Willie, which is an important one, but a perennial one, always important. First, understand what the message is to salespeople when the majority, if not all, of their variable compensation is simply tied to volume. The message is there is no such thing as a bad sale. Just bring it in and we'll worry about that. That is one of the most efficient ways to disconnect sales from strategy. Strategy is always about who you're not selling to, as well as to whom you're selling. And in a comp system that's purely about volume, you're severing that important connection. The second comment that I'll make is, look, change is always difficult in business, but let's not exaggerate the nature of change in this area. You know, one of the things I've heard throughout my career about sales comp is keep it simple, right? I mean, you'll see advice. Good sales comp systems can fit on a business card, stuff like that. That has not been my experience with sales forces and salespeople. And uh, again, once upon a time, I had a full head of hair. I've had a fair amount of experience here. I have yet to see the sales compensation system that the vast majority of salespeople don't understand in detail within two weeks. If this is how you eat, you will prepare the case. You will do your homework. So I don't think the issue is simplicity because their little brains can't cover it. 
they'll understand it very often more than the managers do, which is why managers also complain about gaming. I think the third thing to understand here, and this is where the companies that I think have been successful have been able to do that, volume is important in some businesses and in other businesses, it's less important. So you have to ask yourself when you're changing a sales comp system, not will my salespeople understand it? Will they adapt? Most of them, the good ones will, in my experience. The issue is what behavior am I trying to change? And if that behavior is in the direction of profitability, make the change. On the other hand, if what you're really looking for in your sales force is, in fact, just keep the top of the so-called funnel percolating, and we don't care what kind of beans they are, that's a different story. Your business is a good example. You do need to care about what kind of beans get into your funnel, because once they're there, that's not an inexpensive process. False positives are not a good thing in your business and many, many other businesses. But a comp system purely turned to volume is not going to deal with false positives. So you talk in your book a lot about how difficult it is to find sales talent. And one of the stats that I couldn't believe was that there are over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. And by your search, there are 135 of them that have a course with sales in the title. So back to your previous point, you said sales is so specific to companies and product and location that teaching other skills around sales is very, very difficult. But you also talk about how in interviewing people for sales jobs, that the people who do well in interviews, the correlation between answering all the questions and coming out of interview with a really, really good response by the people interviewing you has almost no correlation to your success in sales jobs. So if we can't rely on interviews, Frank, and we can't rely on the education system, how can we find good salespeople? Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is what's the bottom line implication of what you're citing here? You've got to grow your own. Culture counts. You know this at Dunlop and Walker, but it really, really counts. At the end of the day, hiring and training and development in sales have to be linked because it's just darn tough to develop someone who's a poor fit for the job in the first place. So that's comment number one. Comment number two is the data about interviewing and the lack of correlation for the most part between the evaluations people get in their interviews and their subsequent actual on-the-job performance, that's supported by 60 years of consistent research. It is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear from a business school professor. Now, I've got colleagues at Harvard and other places who know that research and their advice to companies is, Therefore, don't interview. Well, my own feeling is only someone who's never run a business can seriously suggest that. Of course, you interview. People work with people. People hire people. Of course, you have to do that. But you have to augment interviews with other processes because we know that they are not that reliable. And in sales in particular, it's about behavior. It's not about how well they do in the interview process. 
It's about actual behavior. So what you want to do is always put in place processes that give you a look at those behaviors, including internship type hiring scenarios. Now, when I suggest that to companies, especially in the current labor market, where it's obviously a buyer's market, they say, well, we can't possibly do that. We couldn't get good sales talent on that basis. And I, and I say the same thing. Look, you know and I know what you're going to do with someone you hire in business development that doesn't work out over the next 6, 9, 12 months. You can use whatever euphemism you want, but you're probably going to let that person go. Why not be upfront about that in some kind of internship hiring scenario? And by the way, you can put in place compensation and hiring processes that actually give you an advantage with that scenario and make the social contract that we're establishing transparent. So again, the issue about interviewing is very, very real. Most executives think they're the exception, that somehow they can peer into people's souls. They're the horse whisperer. Research says that's very, very unlikely, but it doesn't mean you obliterate interviews. It means you augment them with a whole variety of other processes. Are there any companies that you've looked at, Frank, that have to some degree systematized or standardized their sales recruiting and sales training process that has produced outsized returns? I remember distinctly when I interviewed for a job at Cap One and Richard Fairbank, who is one of the great CEOs in America had always set up that he wanted to hire really smart people. And so I went for my interview and I just graduated from HBS and I was an honors student at HBS and they made me take an aptitude test. And to be honest with you, I was a little offended that I had to take an aptitude test to get a job at Cap One after having been an honors student at HBS. And I kind of actually had fun with the test and uh, didn't take it that seriously. They ended up actually not giving me the job. And it may have been because I did really poorly on the aptitude test. But the point being is they had a certain set of criteria and a way that they were going about recruiting executives. And it clearly has created a fantastic bank at Capital One. Are there other examples of either aptitude or other skills that some firm that has been able to outsize grow sales from a human standpoint, not that they created the greatest product, yeah. but they created the greatest salespeople that you've studied that you could share with us? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at a number of the currently very successful tech firms, you're going to find something very similar to Cap One in the mid-1990s. And Willie, I think you'd agree with me. Cap One did well without you, and you did very well without Cap One. You know, there is, there good, is such a good a- trade. Yeah. You make yeah. a good point. But nonetheless, I think it's very interesting in the sense that you're essentially saying schools aren't training people to be salespeople. Interviews don't tell you a lot about people's sales success. And so the question then would be, what should we be looking for? Yeah. And, you, and you talk about Things such as persistence, tenacity, giving people tests to see whether they come back and really want the job. But then in today's world, as you rightly point out, people are trying to hold on to talent. They're trying to attract talent. And you said to me before, if you lower your standards, you're bringing on your own future problems. So don't just lower your standards today to be able to fill the seat because you're going to end up paying the price in the future. And so I guess what I'm looking for is what's the cheat sheet to hiring good people in today's market? I think where you begin again, I get back to what I said earlier, you begin with the buyer. I'll use the current jargon. 
what do I know about their current buying journey in whatever product market segment I'm hiring this salesperson for, all right? And make sure that what we know about that is relevant today, not just yesterday. Then I think the next thing you do, and I think what I'm about to say is especially relevant in the uh, current market environment, what is it that I expect my business development people to do to exert influence when and where it counts in that buying journey? And, and here I want to step back for a second. When I ask most people hiring in sales, what are you looking for? Tell me about the talent you're looking for. What I get most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, and by most, I mean about 80%, is either A, some succession of platitudes, must be curious, good listener, you know, that sort of thing, or B, a set of traits that quite honestly, only Michelangelo or Michael Jordan could fulfill. And my advice is when you can hire Michelangelo or Michael Jordan, do it. I'm pretty sure they're going to add value, but there aren't that many out there in any market environment, certainly this one. So then you go back to asking yourselves, what is it I want sales to do versus what my marketing people can do or my customer service people or my product people? And I think when most companies do that, what they find is, A, they're able to focus more on what they're looking for, the way Cap One did, the way you know Google does today, and B, that increases their talent pool. Because they're not, they don't need Michelangelo. They can work with me. They can work with someone who's reasonably smart, but not a genius. So that would be my, my advice about how to go about doing that. You talk in the book, and you just mentioned it a little bit, about how sales has gone from being, you use the term a selfie, a one image, you've made the sale, you move on to the next one, to being sort of more of a continuum in the omni-channel world we live in and how engaging with the clients to begin with in putting them into that funnel you talked about previously is not just getting them down to that sales point, but it's actually an ongoing relationship in many, many industries because of the way that clients are interacting with companies. How is that evolution of both the buying cycle and then also the resale cycle, changing the skills that salespeople need to have? Yeah. Well, first, you're exactly right. That is what I mean by omni-channel. The fact, and I think this is an established fact in the vast majority of both consumer and B2B categories, the fact that buyers are online and offline multiple times during their buying journey. Again, buying a car is a good example. The buyers spend three to four times more online researching the purchase than they do in brick and mortar dealerships but more than nine out of 10 cars is still bought in the dealership. Now, this affects skills in a number of ways. And the most important thing to understand, I believe, however, is that this is what you should expect in any competitive activity, whether it's sports, business, and frankly, to use your uh, comments earlier in this webinar, it's part of the magic and value additive capitalism. Let's not forget it. You should expect in any competitive activity that competitive advantage is being a little bit better than the next person, all right? The bar is always rising. And that's exactly what we see going on in sales. 
persistence, active listening, all those basics still remain very, very important. But they're now table stakes. They're the price of entry and the ability to do other things. For example, data analytics. Sales is becoming a much more data-intensive activity in most businesses because the buyer has data. The ability to work with others in the organization. It's more of a cross-functional activity than it was. All of those things are becoming important layered on top of the basics. So that's sort of the way I think about the issue that you're quite rightly raising. And by the way, every indication is this will only continue and accelerate throughout our lifetimes and careers. I love that reminder of the competitive landscape. And I heard you in a previous speech say that you have to remember that in business, the failures go out of business and you're only going against the winners. And a lot of people forget about that. You sort of think that the landscape is filled with winners and losers. Losers go away. It's only the winners who you go head to head with every single day. And you've also said that in business, a lot of it is sort of like two people in the woods who all of a sudden the bear comes out and it doesn't matter how fast you can run. You've just got to be able to run faster than the person next to you. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, in, in the reality in business is you don't compete with people who've gone out of business. And in order to stay in business, continuous improvement, the adoption of best practices is exactly what companies do. That's why that bar is always rising. Now, doesn't make the job of a CEO like you any easier. But, you know, I always quote that wonderful line from the gangster movies. You chose this life. All right. That's just what it means to run a business in a competitive market. So you have a great stat in your book, which says that U.S. corporations spend almost a trillion dollars, over $900 billion a year on sales. And that's sales commissions, sales training, sales trips, T&E, et cetera, et cetera, which is 3x the $300 billion they spend on advertising. And I think it's a really interesting stat, Frank, in the sense that this digital media world that we're all interacting with, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn or however we get our various media streams, seems to be inundating and impacting all of our lives. But you're very direct in saying it has an influence, but not as much as you think. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there are at least two big implications in the data comparison that you're drawing. That 900 billion plus figure is everything you've said, plus attributed back office expenses from CRM systems, etc. That $300 billion figure is not only traditional advertising, but digital advertising and all the other things that we hear so much about. Now, two things are going on there. One is on the digital side, the ability to get customers through that medium is becoming increasingly expensive. There's a joke among tech CMOs these days. Where's the best place to bury a body? Page two of Amazon or Google, because nobody goes there. That's probably where we're going to find Jimmy Hoffa, all right? So in order to get on page one, you've got to pay more and more and more. And not only that, it's a very, very high maintenance route as well as an expensive route. The platforms come and go. Ask yourself, 
How many CMOs could even spell accurately TikTok as recently as two, three years ago? And there will be more. And privacy regulations, which are almost certainly going to increase, make that medium, again, not only increasingly expensive and high maintenance, but what was the promise of using those digital marketing media? The promise was to be able to target precisely. But that's exactly what the privacy regulations make tougher. If you go to the Wall Street Journal today, you'll see a good article about Google changing its data that they're giving the customers. So all of that, I think, makes the digital media in the aggregate a great example of the law of diminishing returns. So what's the responsibility of companies? They ask themselves, where do I get the biggest bang for the buck? And for some years, it was digital, but that's decreasingly so. Now, the $900 billion figure, and this is the other implication, that still remains the lion's share of those allocations. That's where most of the people are. And that gets us back to the good questions you were asking earlier. You know, I always like to quote Mark Twain. Mark Twain in one of his books says, you know, if you're going to put a lot of eggs in one basket, keep your eye on that damn basket. And that's still that $900 billion area. How do we hire? What do we do for training and development? How do we get the most out of where so much of that money is going? So there are two really, I think, interesting points that you make as it relates to digital media. The first is you talk about Facebook and the fact that as much as their user base went up by, I believe, 30% a year between 2016 and 2020, that the cost of advertising on Facebook actually went down during that period of time. So the efficacy of those ads hitting people wasn't what it was in 2020 as it was in back in 2016. And then the second point that you just made that I think is worth underscoring is the fact that the cost of playing and getting onto the front page of whether it's Amazon or Google or, or no. Facebook requires huge checks. And so that there is actually those mediums, just like advertising in the Wall Street Journal and taking out a full page ad is restricted to those people who can stroke a very large check to have that kind of an impact. That if you will, the advertising world has not become more egalitarian as digital media has grown. That's right. That's right. Increasingly, online digital media is a deep pockets, big company game. It is not an area for entrepreneurs emerging. You've got to have big budgets. And in addition, and again, this is what I think a lot of people misunderstand. One of the things that historically, and by historically, I mean the last decade or two, that attracted people to that media was the notion of virality. Now, you know the way this works. Tech industries love to reinvent the wheel. What we used to call word of mouth we now call virality. And what was the notion? You post something, somehow it goes viral, millions of people watch it, and you haven't paid much for it. That is not easy to do. I mean, I've got a colleague here at HBS, Neil Gupta, in the marketing unit. He looks at this in some detail. And what Sunil finds on the platforms he looked at, which is all the major ones, something like 94 plus percent of messages post on social media go nowhere. No one reads them. 
only about 7% get read at least by more than four people, and the remainder are what goes viral. Now, there's a notion, sociologists call this the megaphone effect. There's a notion, which I think is true, is that one of the things that social media does is people talk to people that already agree with them, right? That's the megaphone effect that contributes to political polarization, etc. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But what Sunil's data tells you is that the vast majority of these people are just talking to themselves, nowhere. So again, this is also, I think, one of the myths that's built into a lot of the ways that people think about this aspect. Doesn't mean we ignore digital. It is an omni-channel buying world, but it has to pay its freight the way any other investment in a company has to. It's really interesting, that topic, and on two fronts. One, what's happening in college sports as it relates to name, image, and likeness, and all the branding that's going around that, and what, how that will change the landscape of college football as major media market stars can go and go to USC or UCLA and be in a major market where the car dealerships will pay huge amounts of money for someone to endorse their product. Whereas, you know, if you happen to be in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there are only so many car dealerships can fork over millions of dollars to get a local player to promote their brand. The other one, as you said, Frank, about how much this costs. I have a friend of mine who's in the venture capital world and I, he has a, I will not disclose the actual star, but he has a huge global brand star as his partner. And I asked him last week how much of the business he had to give that star to be his partner in it. And I thought it was going to be three to 5% of the business, 50% of the business, yeah. 50, five, zero. He's a 50, yeah. 50 partner with this global brand to promote this product. And I was shocked that 50% of the equity had to go to him to get to go into it. And I think at those mega brands on individuals, that's sort of where the market is today. It's not like you pay them a couple million bucks to endorse the product anymore. They're actually equity owners in those businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you learned this at Harvard Business School X years ago. The reality of buyer power hasn't disappeared. How buyer power is now accumulated, the means are different. But I've been hearing this all my life. Oh, boy, look, you know, I work with Disney, but Disney is demanding. Well, yes, Disney is demanding. They get their 50% for exactly that reason. You're buying for that access. The point I'm making about digital media, however, is that it's not democratizing access. It's making it a big numbers, deep pockets game. And so on that you also talk about lead generation and lead qualification. And in this world that's filled with data points that say, oh, you got that many clicks on that ad that went out, you're very insightful in saying, don't let the big data, the big numbers make you think that you're actually getting sales qualified leads. You're just getting sales leads that are going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the best example of this is so-called CRM systems in companies. And, you know, reality for the majority of companies, their CRM system, the data in the CRM system is notoriously noisy. Why? Because I'm a salesperson and anyone who clicks on a link for my company or anyone that I may send an email to, I call that a qualified lead. 
you're my colleague in the next cubicle. No, for you, a qualified lead is someone who actually has a budget and does all that. But the system in its data simply gives us the aggregate of all those diverse assumptions that are happening. The reality, and this is the point I want our listeners to take away, the reality is that ultimately lead qualification in any business beyond very, very simple businesses, lead qualification is done by human beings, not by machines. It's done by the algorithms we give them. And in businesses like yours, it's done by people with judgment and experience who sort of say this is in our market space, this is not. That that aspect of sales, I don't think, is going away. And the data, if anything, is making it a more complex judgment in most businesses. You focus on sales superstars, and I have plenty of them at Walker and Dunlop. And you go to the old 80-20 rule, where 80% of sales typically come from 20% of the sales force. One of the interesting things you do is you do the coefficient on that, which says that you're at a three coefficient on the 20% doing 60. You do 60-40 rather than 80-20. You basically say 60% of sales for 20% of the sales force, that's a three. The other 40% of sales is coming from the other 80%, that's a 0.5. So your big salespeople are 6x as valuable to you as your underperformers. Talk about that for a moment, if you would, as it relates to you've looked at lots and lots of companies that have both tried to import big talent and how transferable those skills are from one platform to the next. And then from a retention standpoint of how valuable is that top salesperson who walks into your office and says, the competition's offering me X plus, I'm walking out the door. What should all of us do to either hold on to that person or say, you know what, market wins, I got to let them go. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, again, this is as close to an established fact as you're going to see. The research about this is pretty consistent. Talent matters in sales. That top 20%, what you refer to as the 80-20 rule, when you got a doctorate, you say Pareto optimality, right? Sounds better. That's how you get your fees up. But Pareto optimality. You get that at MIT or at Cornell. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out which one of those great institutions taught you that. Anyway. I got that at HBS, right? (laughs) That's how I learned to raise prices. But that's real in sales. The top quintile in most sales forces are not just a little bit better than the average. I'm not talking about the laggards. I'm talking about the average they're usually a couple of orders of magnitude better. So when, in fact, those people want to walk, especially in a relationship business, you will pay market rates. That's reality. Now, the second element here, however, is what most companies do. They chase those stars. But stardom, while it's real in sales, is not easily portable. It's just not. Most companies... Most managers have the experience of hiring X, and she was a star at this company, but somehow when she gets to our company, it's not the same. Now, think about that. Why did that happen? It's not as though that person suddenly got stupid or she lost her individual capabilities. Stardom in sales depends very much not only on that person's ability in the external market with clients, with customers but on what they do internally. Again, culture matters. It matters. It it depends on the relationships 
that they establish with others in their company that are important for lead generation, service, order fulfillment. And when a salesperson leaves company X and comes to company Y, they leave all of that behind. They have to recreate it. Part of the job of the company they're joining, part of the job of the CEO is to accelerate that necessary learning and internal relationship development process. But, you know, that's the important thing. And then the third comment I'd make, and again, a big issue in the current environment where talent has more options right now than it had certainly two years ago, you've got to ask yourself, I think, when that happens, and it is happening with increasing frequency, what do I lose when this person leaves? And how much of that can be reproduced? In some circumstances, the math is very, very definitive, and you've got to pay to retain the talent. In others, the so-called hunters already become a farmer, and guess what? Because of digital technology or because of other things, there are ways that I retain that relationship. So two quick things on that. One, you reference in your book a colleague of yours at HBS who studied the impact of star salespeople. And that I think they quantified it down to 50% of their success was not based on his or her talents, but on the overall platform brand team that they were amongst. I was I thought it was surprising to be able to to some degree quantify the other elements of what brought value to that individual. Yeah. Yeah, my colleague's name is Boris Groisberg. It's a wonderful a bit of research he did in a very good book published a couple of years ago. It's called Chasing Stars. By the way, he fundamentally looked at people in financial services, right? You would think that's transactions. It's not. But a large part of that success in Boris's estimate, more than 50%, is based on those internal relationships that those people established with others, the chemistry, the teamwork, what we call culture. You know, there's that old phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's not true. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It does matter where you work and with whom you work and how you work with them. And sales is, frankly, exhibit A for that truism about business. Just as a quick aside on that, Frank, and I mentioned this to you yesterday, I went back and looked, and since we're a public company, this is all public information, but our commission expense at Walker and Dunlop in 2010 was a whopping $26 million. And today it is over $350 million a year in commission expense. And I think about that in the sense of Walker and Dunlop being a great place for salespeople to work. And you just think about the growth in commission payments from 25 million a year to over 350 million a year over an 11 year period. It is reflective of the overall platform and culture that makes salespeople successful at a firm like ours. And I think it's an interesting one for salespeople to go and look at that line item, particularly if they're going to a publicly traded company, you can get that information quite easily and look at how much growth there is in that commission expense line versus some others that might be flat or going backwards as it relates to the growth of their sales force and the products that they're selling. Yeah. And I'd add two other things. One is you've got to look at that number as I know you do. Not only, hey, guess what? I'm paying a lot more in commission, 
Well, what's happened to the value of Walker and Dunlop as you've gone from 26 million to 300 million plus? A very, very good positive return on the money you're paying out in commission. The other thing that's important here, and again, I think it gets back to the talent issues that we were describing earlier. A lot of companies, when it comes to sales, and the reason they chase stars, to use my colleague's uh, wonderful title, they see a trade-off that I believe, and I think the research demonstrates is a false trade-off between hiring an experienced person and the amount of work I've got to do to make them productive in my company. In business, there's no such thing as performance in the abstract. That platonic ideal does not exist. There's only performance in our company, with our product, in our market. And that's what one has to invest in. A lot of companies, I often hear this in sales, well, if we spend all this time and effort and money with this talent, they're going to get options and go somewhere else. And I always say the same thing. How long would you like to work with a really talented person as opposed to a mediocrity? Five years? Five months? The answer is five minutes. You want to be a talent magnet as a company. And yes, people are going to poach that talent, but that's a heck of a lot better to place to be in than the alternative, right? This gets us back to your first comment, Welch. Again, the good news is we had a horse race. We had a group of people at least perceived as very valuable, and they all went somewhere else after Jeff Immelt gets the job. But that's better than not having the talent. I could go on for another two hours. I've got three more pages of notes on your book that I wanted to get through. And I'm, I'm now at the bottom of the hour and I try and hold these to a full hour. Frank, your book is fantastic. Your insight into how to get sales talent, manage sales talent, manage data. It's all in your book and it's a fantastic read. I'm deeply thankful of you spending an hour with me to talk about your book and all the research you've done. And I look forward to seeing you when I'm back in Boston next. I look forward to that as well. And again, I want to thank you very, very much for hosting me. I do appreciate it. It's great. I hope everyone had a great day. I've got the new U.S. women's marathon record holder on the webcast last week to talk about how Kara D'Amato both set that record in Houston last weekend and how she did it as a 38-year-old mother of two full-time single-family housing broker. And I cannot wait to talk to her about both how she trains, how she manages her life, and what got her to be the fastest woman ever to run a marathon and she's off to the Olympics, hopefully sometime soon to represent the United States of America. So anyway, Frank, great to see you this week. Look forward to seeing everyone again next week. Thank you. Take care.